Hey listeners, Lex on the Decks here. Before you get stuck into this episode of Hot Girls, I wanted to let you know about something else you may be interested in. Though Hot Girls in its podcast format isn't releasing new episodes any longer, if you head over to my Substack, which is lexonthedecks.substack.com, you'll find more interviews and insight on gender minority artists and how to overcome any barriers to entry. You'll also get the opportunity to sign up to my weekly newsletter, Five Good Things. This is an email letter which will land in your inbox on Fridays, sharing five of my favourite cultural or creative discoveries of the week. You'll find all that on lexonthedex.substack.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Hot Girls. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Hot Girls with me, Lex on the Decks. Firstly, I want to say a big thank you to everyone um, who's listened and supported the show. We are now in our fourth season, which is pretty incredible um, and very cool and definitely not something I could have expected when I started this. So yeah, that's that's thanks to you, really. Credit to the audience. And for this first biography episode of the season, I'm taking a look at Nina Simone. She's a musician I first heard of through her famed and powerful rendition of Ain't Got No... I got life. I heard it when I was still in primary school and I was introduced to it as part of the limited education about the slave trade and impact of racism, particularly on the United States. I didn't know anything about the singer herself, so now I am putting that right. A film came out about her recently, which is on Netflix, so if you've watched that, you'll be familiar with some of the many struggles she faced in making sense of the world. Nina Simone wasn't a singer. She was a communicator, and she communicated from passion, frustration, pain, and belief. So this is A Lesson in Conflict by Nina Simone. Ladies, gentlemen, listen up. You're listening to Hot Girls. With Lex on the deck. We in the mix. It's fire. Keep it going. We are fire. From London for the world. Let's go in. Born Eunice Wayman on the 21st of February, 1933. And I'm just going to repeat that because I will dip kind of back and forth between names through this. So Eunice, Nina, same person. She was a young black girl with two respected parents. Her dad was a handyman and her mum was a Methodist minister. She had an interesting relationship with her mother who was respected widely by the community and indeed by Eunice as well. But she said her mother never showed her any affection. She was harsh and not particularly warm. 
So Eunice, aka Nina, said her older sister was really the family member who that she looked to to be that more maternal figure. She started playing the piano at just three years old, sneaking onto the one in her home, and by five, she was playing it in church. During a church service, a white woman heard her play and took great interest in Eunice. Called Mrs. Miller, she paid for a year's piano lessons with an Englishwoman called Muriel Mazanovic, affectionately known as Miss Mazzy. And Miss Mazzy almost spiritually adopted her, so she took ownership over her development as a musician. She was, I guess, somewhere between a sponsor and a surrogate mother, so she kind of gave Eunice some of the affection that she didn't get at home. She was actually a piano teacher by trade who arranged for Eunice to have intense and consistent practice initially with her and then with other people. When it was with her, she introduced Eunice to Bach, the classical composer. And it was in Bach that Nina Simone really found magic in the piano and in the structure of music. Interestingly, I saw an Instagram live that James Blake did in, I think, the first lockdown. (laughs) Remember that? And he also credited Bach as being one of his great musical influences. And I think classicists gravitate towards him. It's really, I'll be honest, not something I know much about because I am not a classical pianist, but I hear that Bach is a very mathematically great and sort of perfect musician. As well as being shaped musically by these early years, Nina Simone had a gradual exposure and understanding of the way racism impacted and controlled the world around her. As I said, her sponsor, Miss Mazzy, was white and she had arranged a fundraiser to cover costs for Eunice to go to boarding school and have continued piano lessons there. As part of this, to say thank you to the people who contributed to the fund, they put on a concert for the community. And her parents came and they sat down to watch in the front, to watch their daughter, and they were asked to move further to the back to allow some of the white audience members to sit near the front. So Nina saw this and she knew it was wrong, even though she was probably 10 at the time. She took a stand and she said, I am black, my parents are black, and if they can't sit at the front, I'm not going to perform. This was an early protest that would continue through her life. So for high school, Nina went to that boarding school on the music scholarship. When she was in school, she said all she did was study. If it wasn't general school studies, it was piano. She was determined to be the first great black pianist. That was her dream. She also experienced heartbreak in her teens. Her first teenage love, a boy called Edney, and they had something which became almost a pattern in Nina's life. A relationship with passion, but toxicity. He ultimately tried to rape her in almost an attempt to physically overpower her. So she was determined to go to, first it was challenging, she went to boarding school, but then she was so determined to go to a school called the Juilliard School of Music. And that was in New York. And obviously this was over 50 years ago when it wasn't really easy to travel, but she wanted to go to New York. And so he, yeah, he tried to contain her. And she said on reflection, I found a youthful love and lost it. That was the turning point. I lost love and found a career, but I'm a long way from compensating for what I gave up. Chasing love and chasing greatness was always a conflict for Nina and a source of genuinely deep unhappiness. Maybe now is a good time to say that I admire Nina as a musician, but as a person, she was nothing short of troubled. Things which hurt her seeped like poison. She couldn't find her peace with anything. And I think that should be a warning because literally what does success mean if happiness isn't a part of it? After high school graduation, Nina moved to Harlem in New York to prepare for music college auditions. She had one lesson a week, but she spent between four to five hours a day practicing while attending summer school. 
Her dream is to be America's first great black classical pianist. And she felt to do that, she needed to go to Juilliard. But unfortunately, she was rejected for the scholarship and she therefore failed. There's speculation and a fair deal of reason to believe that she was rejected because she was black and poor and female. And maybe one of those things could be overlooked, but the combination couldn't. However, it's also true that the acceptance rate of Juilliard, the school at that time, was just 5%. And if you thought you had a chance, you're already at an an exceptional level. So it's also feasible that she didn't quite cut the mustard, as the school had permitted black students for quite a few years. But I'm sure the ground wouldn't have been equal. My parents did understand that I was a gift, and I had a boyfriend, and I was approved by the community, and I played in churches, and I studied. I did what they told me. So I didn't really know very much about that. We were poor, but I didn't know much about it. I knew it existed, but it didn't touch me. It touched me first time when I gave a concert, uh, a recital at age 12, and they wanted to put my mom and daddy on the back row in the concert, uh, in the little recital hall. And I remember standing up quite bravely and said, oh, no, my mom and dad will sit on the front row. That was first. And the second one came was when I went to, to Curtis and I, 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 I passed the test. And I knew it was good. I, I was at that time kind of humble, not too much these days. But um, and I didn't understand it. I was playing Charney and Liszt and Rachmaninoff and Bach. And I knew it was good. And uh, but I, and we made records, but I, I didn't understand why I didn't get that scholarship for 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 for, for, for anything. And um, there were people around me who knew about my talent as well, and they said, "Nina, it's because you are black." And I, I, it shocked me. This rejection was hugely traumatic for her. The combination, I think, of the pressure from the funding she'd received since she was 11 and also the giving up of her love to pursue that dream made the blow, the rejection, just absolutely devastating. She moved back to Philadelphia, which is where her parents were. She continued piano lessons with the plan to re-audition to Juilliard later, which she definitely saw as the place that she should be. She started earning money as an accompanying pianist, which is kind of like a session musician. And that covered her piano lessons, which she was still taking. And it also gave her a bit left over to help provide for her family, who were struggling a bit financially. Eventually, she moved out and she gave private piano lessons in the home of her own. And she lived for a while in what she later described as a pretty normal existence. But normal wasn't for Nina. And ultimately, she felt lost in Philadelphia. So she started looking at other options. And she was offered a residency in Atlantic City for the summer at a bar. Bit like getting a season air job in Ibiza, kind of. For Nina Simone, she knew her family wouldn't approve because of their religious beliefs. And so that kind of conflicted the club world. And that was why she adopted the name Nina Simone to conceal her identity. So that was when she stopped being Eunice Wayman and started being Nina Simone. It was her first time in a bar and she played from 9pm till 4am every night with just 15 minute breaks and saw it as a time to practice and ultimately a kind of cult fan base developed around her at the club and she was invited back the year after. One thing that really changed for her in that club environment was that she was told she had to start singing. The owner of the venue said, we need not just a pianist, we need a singer as well. Her first fan that she also got from that venue introduced her to Billie Holiday. And despite not really like warming to Billie Holiday, 
she saw that the crowd really loved and that particular fan really wanted to see her perform Billie Holiday songs. So she started, you know, performing in her set some of those songs. She built relationships from those performances and eventually those took her to New York. And now we're in 1957, uh, so nearly the 60s, and she recorded 13 songs. To give you some insight into what Nina loved personally as a musician, after the recording of those 13 songs, which were by and large kind of pop, jazz, or a little bit bluesy, she played Beethoven for three days straight to cleanse herself from the experience. So she didn't respect that music that she became often associated with. She really, really was a classicist. And I said this was going to be a lesson in conflict. And consider that this is like the fourth conflict I've raised this episode. So I'm going to run through them. The first was a conflict of race, which I'll talk a lot more about. The second being that between love and greatness, the head and the heart, if you will. The third being between music and religion when she decided to go to the club. And now the fourth here being passion versus popularity or opportunity in what she was presenting. The structure, the cleanliness, the tone, the nuances, the implications, the silences, the dynamics, the pianissimos, the fortissimos, all have to do with sound and music, and it's it's as close to God as I know. The cleanliness of, of classical music, not all of it, some of it's too cold, but Bach was a master. And let me say in this path also, many, many jazz um, masters knew what they were doing. Coltrane, Dizzy Gillespie was still with us. He uh, does lots of comedy, but he's a great master. Uh, Miles Davis is a master. Duke Ellington was unquestionably one. And um, Art Blakey is one. I wish to God I could play with him. Uh, and, uh, 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 and I said Coltrane. And we have, of course, Art Tatum at some time. And one of the greatest pianists in the world is Oscar Peterson. I can only think of those four or five masters. I only like masters. Around the same time in 1958, she married a big loser named Don Ross. Sorry, Don. No one attended the wedding because everyone around her was like, why are you marrying this guy? They met because he used to just hang out at the bar. And yeah, according to all opinions, he was a bit of a drip. Um, But Nina was seemingly lonely. And I think she found something of ease in his company. Although she also began drinking and taking LSD at this time. So maybe Don wasn't making her happy. But those and the relationship seemed to be her ways of coping with the feelings of isolation that I think were beyond the physical. Still very young, by 26, she was somewhat of a recording star due to the success of her re-recording of that Billie Holiday song, I Love You Porgy. It grew and grew through radio. And actually in 2000, that recording was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. But more than a recording artist, Nina Simone was really famous as a performer and parts of her infamy grew around the fact that no one ever knew what they would get when she performed. She was so determined to impress and yet was utterly unimpressed by the pop or jazz she knew she had to play. So she would try and reinvent the work she was playing live to create something she connected to. Despite being unpredictable, Nina was so brilliantly talented that this could heighten the drama of the occasion. 
So now we've got to this stage in Nina's career where she is a celebrated performer and recording artist. I'm going to step back and look at three aspects which played a role in her career and life individually. So we're stepping out of the world of biography. I've done the establishing. (laughs) You know who she is and you know what she's about. The first thing I'm going to talk about is ego. And Nina Simone's ego was very complex. So she once got into a fight with a fan because she felt the fan was not grateful enough for an autograph that she'd signed. And I think there was something about Nina and there would often be moments where she'd be on stage and she would either walk off or she would... There was one incident apparently where she demanded that she be paid ahead of the performance and then counted the cash on stage before starting. And I think there's just something about her obsession with greatness and expectation that she would be respected for it. If you can't be quiet, then leave, was her attitude. And here's a quote from her. She says, I regarded myself as one of the most gifted people out there. So she had no confidence issues. She very much believed in herself, but she felt this anger and frustration that people didn't respect, didn't respect the music that she played in the way that she wanted them to. And I think that was that conflict of she was in these venues, which were kind of popular venues, and she really just wanted to be playing really classical music to a completely quiet audience. And that was really tough for her. And then her marriage. So the second thing I do want to talk about is her second marriage. I mentioned that she first married a guy called Don Ross, a bore. Well, they divorced fairly quickly, but her second husband was way worse, unfortunately. He was very, very aggressive. And when the couple were engaged, he got so angry at her one night, he beat her up, tied her up and raped her and then passed out beside her. She had to escape and run to someone's house um, where he managed to recover her three days later and they still got married. When they met, he worked in the police. um, But as her status grew, he left the police force and he became her manager. So their relationship, which started off, as I said, in this toxic, violent, chaotic place, never really left that place. And he then took ownership of her career and he would force her to work at a certain rate. As she started becoming less interested in the popularity vote and more interested in doing what she felt was right and the protest work, that caused further tensions in their relationship because she was a breadwinner and he couldn't make any money without her. She was his toy to make money as well as she was his, you know, wife. And the sad thing as well is that that violence that Nina received, she also gave out and she was abusive towards her daughter. So it was this not fun kind of pattern of pain and violence that surrounded Nina. Ultimately, Nina Simone was angry. But one of the things she was most angry about was the racial injustice that she was surrounded by. And she had every right to be angry about that. It had pervaded every part of her life and perhaps even her dream. Increasingly in her life, she wanted to be an activist over a musician, and that caused tensions in her career. But as I said, she had an impact. Her performances were protests and very powerful ones, which still carry such weight today. I think someone with her level of skill on the piano, which really is remarkable, when you don't have to think about what you're doing with your hands, when the piano, when the instrument is like so native, you can just communicate your way through that instrument. And that's how I think Nina Simone was so remarkable. 
because her and the piano were, she was more herself when she was at the piano than at any other time. So in what has been a little bit more of a complex journey than some of the other musicians I've spoken to, what are some of my key takeaways from Nina Simone? Well, one is that I think she's a great demonstration of the perception imbalance around what it takes to be great. And she was undeniably great. (laughs) She knew that. And I think we know that as well. But she started at age three and she practiced for four hours a day. And Hugh Hefner, yeah, that one, (laughs) once said of Nina Simone, she's a star who came out of nowhere. And I think we often sort of speak about artists in that way today. Like, where did they come from? They were an overnight success. And as they say, any overnight success is 10 years in the making. And Nina Simone was 20. And finally, peace is everything when it comes to happiness. Unfortunately for Nina Simone, she was rarely at peace. So we have to be grateful and inspired by her pure passion for music and the genius of her artistry. But yeah, peace should be prioritized. Thanks for listening, guys. Have a great week. What up, let's? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.